With the news media reporting increasingly more data breaches and cybersecurity events, and the use of personal data in ways that invade people's privacy, you need to know how to keep your business's data, not to mention your own personal data, safe from hacks and your business operating in the most secure environment. Otherwise, this can not only hurt your business reputation, it can cost you clients. Welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. We're here to help you prevent potential damages and losses before the hackers even have your number. Now, here is the Privacy Professor and your host, Rebecca Harold. Hello and welcome to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. I'm Rebecca Harold, your host. Thank you for joining us. Welcome to the 98th episode of my show. Please subscribe to my show on iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or whatever your favorite podcast or news app is. Also, please subscribe to my show on the Voice America Business Channel website. Then you'll be notified just as soon as each new show is available. Thank you to all my listeners throughout the world. I sincerely appreciate you in, you know, wherever you're at, in the at least 70 countries where I know I now have listeners. Thank you for listening and sending all your messages. I sincerely hope you are all doing well. My April Privacy Professor Tips message was published on March 30th. I've provided them since 2005 to increase general awareness of data and cybersecurity and privacy issues, and also to provide a free awareness publication for organizations to send to their employees because awareness does not get enough budget. So use those and uh, help to make your folks more aware. Sign up for them by going to privacyguidance.com or privacysecuritybrainiacs.com and submitting your email in the box on your screen. We just released a new, completely updated privacy and security Brainiacs class called HIPAA Basics for Business Associates 2022 edition that all types of business associates will benefit from as well as covered entities because they need to know what their business associates are supposed to be doing also. Check it out on privacysecuritybrainiacs.com. We will soon be announcing our new Master Experts online education classes. And my January guest, Dr. Mish Kabay, will be providing some great and much-needed classes on secure coding, testing code thoroughly, software development, quality assurance, and many other valuable classes covering a really wide range of topics, many not covered elsewhere. Also, something I've been talking about here for the last few shows, we will be publishing our latest book, Cybersecurity for Grandparents and Everyone Else, the Q2 2022 edition, IoT Security and Privacy, very soon. And I know I've been saying this, I keep finding more stuff to include in that book. So I know, I know, I need to just finish it up, and I will. And I'll just plan to put all that extra additional information into the next version of the book. It will be available from Amazon 
throughout the world, go to Amazon, do a search for cybersecurity for grandparents or check for Rebecca Harold, and you'll see it listed along with many of my other books. Okay, so today, a lot of news has been released lately about Dirty Pipe, the Dirty Pipe vulnerability in the Linux operating system. And we will be touching upon that today, but when I read all those news stories, it reminded me that I've gotten a lot of questions over the past few years from listeners and readers of my monthly tips newsletters about Linux as well as Unix. And I want to give a quick shout out to a few of my listeners who sent in some of those questions and particularly the students from Los Angeles City College, from the Haskell Indian Nations University in Lawrence, Kansas, and also from Iowa State University in Ames. Plus, I I receive many others from practitioners working in the IT area. Now, I did a bit of research, and I was a little bit surprised to see statistics from W3Techs that, as of today, uh, we're recording this on March 25th of 2022, when I rechecked that research that I did when I was planning for this show. As of today, Unix is currently used Uh, according to their research, by 80% of all the websites of the operating systems that they're tracking. And Unix is used by 77.8% of all the websites that rank in the top 1 million websites that are online. Linux is used by 37.6% of all the websites that the W3 techs uh, we're looking at, and Linux is used by 42, uh, 42.6% of all the websites that rank in the top 1 million websites. You know, that is a lot more usage of Unix and Linux than I had really anticipated, and no wonder I have been getting so many questions then about Unix and Linux in recent years, and increasingly so from high school and university students. So I decided, well, now is the time to do an episode about Unix and Linux systems and security and also touch upon careers. So today I have the perfect person to discuss a wide range of Unix and Linux cybersecurity, and career topics. And I think he may actually be the world's most experienced and knowledgeable expert on Unix and possibly also Linux. We'll find out here in a little bit. And I'm really happy to welcome to my show today Rick Farrow. Now, at the beginning of his career, Rick worked at North Star Computers, an early PC kit company. And if some of you don't know what I mean, Google it. (laughs) Or Rick can tell us here a little bit. Rick built his own computer and soon started consulting. And Rick's specialty in those early days was interfacing computers like his to other devices. Now, Rick wrote documentation for Bay Area computer companies and he started working with Unix systems. Rick was hired to ghostwrite the book Programmer's Guide to the Unix System, and then in 1984, Rick was asked to research Unix security 
and he discovered that the only documentation on security consisted of two Bell System journal articles. But then Rick found a 14-page write-up of Unix exploits at a nearby university, and that began his security uh, career. Now, Rick finished his second book, Unix System Security, by 1989 and was teaching Unix security internationally. Rick Farrow has designed courses for the NSA, for NASA, for Usenix, for ISACA, and many other organizations throughout the world. Rick has also taught Windows security and has been an editor for Unix World Magazine, the Usenix Membership Magazine, and hundreds of articles. You can see more about Rick Farrow in the bio on my Voice America show site page about today's episode. Rick, thank you so much for being my guest today. Welcome to my show. Thank you, Rebecca. Well, you know, I gave the listeners a little taste of how you got into this career, but my my listeners always want to know more to help them with their career decisions also. So what more do you have uh, to add about how you got into securing Unix, Linux, and other flavors of those operating systems? Well, I had I had started out as a working for North Star Computers, but sitting at a desk didn't really suit me well. So I quit my job and started um, started looking for work in the Bay Area. And I got a, a number of jobs. For example, interfacing a gas chromatograph to my computer, or adding a hard drive to my own computer. Which back in those days. 34 megabyte hard drive cost $2,000. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it, it made the computer five, either slow computer five times faster. So it really seemed to be worthwhile. But I needed uh, a steadier, steadier type of income. And I didn't want to be sitting in a cubicle somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I got contacted by Moral Designs, another one of the Bay Area companies, and they said, hey, um, could you write this manual for us? Actually, you just wanted one revised. That led to another now long-defunct company called Dual Systems, who asked me if I could write a systems manual. I had no idea what they're talking about. Mm. But, I, but I, um, I looked at what they, were, what they had, and it was the first Unix system I'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. Now, people were interested in Unix systems in those days because you could have a PC and then you could plug lots of terminals into it. So it was a way of having a multi-user system that was very cheap. Your alternative was many computers that cost $100,000 and up. And this would be, you know, starting around $10,000, you could have a multi-user computer. So that was the interest in the Bay Area. But for me, I got to start studying Unix. And I think in those days, the entire Unix documentation set was a few of those technical articles in the Bell Systems Journal and about a stack of paper fit in two binders. And that was all your Unix documentation. There were no books. 
So if you wanted to learn something, you had to do it yourself. And I really like doing that. I'd like to practice. And because I, I like to play with systems, and one of the things I learned about Unix very quickly is it was really hard to break. Mm, I, I could do all yeah, I could do all kinds of things to it, and I, it would just keep working. Of course, I was a smart enough guy that if I really screwed up, I could, you know, reinstall the operating system and start over. But I learned a lot that way. Now, my while I was working at Moro Design, some of the engineers they were talking about um, exploiting a mail program, the mail server program that was very popular for the next 20 years called SendMail. And I thought that was interesting, but it didn't really capture my attention because I was busy doing other things. And I started working with the author of the first big popular technical book, which happened to be the user's guide to the Unix system by Rebecca Thomas. And I had, I wound up meeting her and having her ask me, well, they made me take a writing test, which is funny. Mm -hmm. And then they asked me if I would ghostwrite, which simply means when you're in that, in that particular case, they would pay me $15 an hour to learn, to actually do the research and write text, which I would get back marked up with red pen to correct. Mm -hmm. And I wrote Programmer's Guide for the Unix System. Now, after I'd written that, I also wrote an appendix for Business User's Guide. And while I was doing that, the co-author of that book, Joe Campbell, a uh, professor at University of California, Berkeley, said, well, what about security? And I laughed. And he said, what, if business people are going to use Unix, there needs to be some discussion of security. So that's when I first looked into it and came across at 14 pages of Unix exploits from University of California, Santa Cruz. And that got me somewhat interested, but I, I spent most of the next four years writing my own first book that wasn't ghostwritten. You know, um, System 5 Administrator's Guide. And while I'm doing that, I'm consulting constantly and also working with a small company, a small software company called Cheryl Lubinsky. And that, that really helped me a lot because besides my consulting customers where I was doing system administration, the programming company was building a a software program, an object-oriented graphics modeling system. And they would, manufacturers would bring in all these different types of Unix workstations. Mm. And the, the bosses there knew I, you know, knew that I knew how to work with system administration. So they'd say, okay, Rick, we just got an HP UX box in. Can you hook it up to our network and get it set up? So, you know, set up logins on it, install our software. And I go, sure. And what that meant to me is I got to learn about, oh, at least a half dozen different versions of Unix while working there. Wow. Um, 
Now, this is, I saw, I've seen some of the questions we're going to be talking about. And mm-hmm. I noticed that people talk about, they say Unix as if it's one thing. Mm-hmm. If you go to Wikipedia and you type in Unix version, you'll see that there are probably, I don't know, a dozen different major versions of Unix. And when you count all the different um, releases, it's over, you know, it's hundreds of releases, all subtly different. Mm-hmm. So there is, there is no one Unix. While I was there, I worked with HPUX, DEC Unix, IBM's Unix, which is called AIX, um, Sun Solaris, and I must be forgetting some because it seemed like there were more. But it was a great opportunity for me because I was then learning about security and I had all these different systems that I could play with. Mm -hmm. And so I could try things that might not work on one system, but that would work on another system. So that gave me a lot of exposure, and it also worked in a way that I really liked. Somebody was paying me to learn. Yes. <laughs> well, which of those, I mean, with all those flavors of Unix then, did you have a favorite? Yeah, in those, from- in those, in those days, my favorite was something called Sun OS. Okay. Why? I mean... Could it do more things than the others, or was it more secure? Well, back to back to laughing about back to laughing about security. Um, (laughs) SunOS was based on Berkeley, the Berkeley software distribution, which is the one that was most widely used in universities, and Mm -hmm. um, through my co-author, Becca Thomas, I could log into a system called Fern at UC Berkeley and look at source code. So, for example, I wanted to learn how the file system checker worked. I could actually download the 16 pages of source code and read through them. And uh, in a way that that wasn't Bell Labs source code because that was written by people outside of Bell Labs. Mm. Written by uh, a professor and a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon University. Anyway, so that was our favorite platform. That's what most of us were using. And it was actually, in those days, it was because it was faster, really. It wasn't so much that it was more secure, but it was faster. And Sun just made things much easier to work with. It was more of an open system. For example, uh, AIX wanted to use a different kind of networking, token ring, and HPUX, all their connectors are weird. And that doesn't sound, you know, it doesn't have much to do with security, but you're mm-hmm. talking what was my favorite system, the one that was easiest to use, and that was definitely SunOS. Okay. Well, so when people hear Unix, and like you said, a lot of times they think, oh, that's just one Unix. And you explain very well, there's lots of different Unixes. So when people hear Linux, a lot of times they hear that and they view that as another type of of Unix. 
and, and you know, that's where the dirty pipe vulnerability is. So I guess with regard to that, what is it about Linux that is similar to and or different from Unix then? Okay. If you look at that Unix version um, diagram on Wikipedia, you'll notice mm-hmm. that Linux is over on the left-hand side and there's a line between that and every other Unix version. The reason for that line is all the other Unix versions have a common source. It came out of Bell Labs back in 1969. Whereas Linux, this is a person who had, was using Andy Tenenbaum's operating system book. And he decided he would, you know, just playing around, he would write his own operating system. And he started off by doing the most basic thing that you can do, which is actually something I did when I was in college. You write a terminal handler, and then you write a file system so you can store things. And then you write something that can execute the files that you've stored. And gradually you build up until you had what was 0.9 Linux, which is when he first, uh, this is Linus Torvalds, when he first started distributing it. And that was about 1991 or two, a long mm-hmm. time ago. Mm-hmm. But but it was a clean, a clean room implementation that had a similar set of system calls and a similar set of utility programs as you'd find in a regular Unix system. And the reason for that is Unix is well known. There is actually a um, GNU set of utilities that weren't from um, AT&T. So there was no, there was no copyright. So you could have this open source language that anyone could use. That's, so Linux is really, you can say it's Unix, but it's really not. It's Unix-like, it's something more accurate. Okay. So what what's your opinion then? I mean, it sounds like you like it pretty well, the way you described it. Um, but do you still prefer the, you know, the other flavors of Unix better? Uh, not anymore. Okay. These, what happened is during the 90s, I'm starting to teach. I'm going on the road a lot. And I have a laptop that's actually running a version of FreeBSD. Now, mm-hmm. FreeBSD, if you look at that, it's, it's Berkeley Unix. It's, uh, I actually had support from it, from the company that was distributing it. And I used it up until 2000 when I got an IBM ThinkPad, which would not let me install the FreeBSD on it. And Linux just wasn't as, Linux was not as mature at that point you know, in the early 90s. I mean, it was a toy operating system. By around the end of the 90s, Linux had become quite mature, and I switched over to using Linux at that point. The other reason I did that is, in the 90s, if you had a a web server, it was running Unix or Linux. Most of the time, Unix in the mid-90s, but by the end of the 90s, people were switching over to either BSD, which I knew well, or to Linux, and Linux was becoming more popular. So I have pretty much switched to using Linux. This is what I have 
on most of my home systems. My web server was oh. running on FreeBSD, but everything else, everything else in the house is, is Linux-based. Okay. So we're coming up here on a um, break really quick. When we come back, I want to touch upon dirty pipe, just a high-level view, not getting in-depth, but then we can start looking into a lot of those uh, questions that I've been getting from my listeners uh, over the years. So right now it's time for a quick break to hear from our sponsors. I'm speaking today with Unix and Linux trailblazing cybersecurity expert, Rick Farrow. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, the privacy professor. You can contact me with questions and comments about this show, as well as show topic suggestions using my email, RebeccaHerald at RebeccaHerald.com, and also through my privacyguidance.com and privacysecuritybrainiacs.com websites. Please stay with us. We will be right back after these important messages from my sponsors. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. The Privacy Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit PrivacySecurityBrainiacs.com. You are listening to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. If you have a question or comment about the program, feel free to send an email to Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. That's Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. Now, back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor. Welcome back to Data Security and Privacy with the Privacy Professor on the Voice America's Business Channel. I'm your host, Rebecca Harold, and I'm speaking today with Unix and Linux trailblazing cybersecurity expert, Rick Farrow. So before we left, Rick gave a good background about how he got into, you know, using Unix and Linux, but 
You know, Rick, how did you actually, you said that there was hardly any documentation about security, but yet you were talking about uh, teaching about Unix security and so on. So what did you do to learn more about security in Unix? Well, something that's really different about the 90s than what you see today is that people would publish exploits online. Mm -hmm. Now, that still happens to some degree. It's mostly individual security companies promoting themselves by saying, we found this bug. Here's a proof of concept. But during the 90s, there was a, a mailing list called Bug Track. Mm -hmm. Later, it was called, it was purchased and became security focused. And people would post, hey, I found this bug, here's how it can be exploited. And they would have a proof of concept. Now, a proof of concept is just an example of how you would build an exploit. It's it just like uh, on a Windows proof of concept, it might pop up the calculator um, window on your screen. Mm. And in Unix, you might just write a file in the temp directory just to say, see, I can do this. Mm -hmm. So I, I learned a lot by reading those. And from that, I said, well, if you have an exploit like this, how could I have stopped it? And so I focused on the various countermeasures for the exploits that were popping up all through that decade. Oh, okay. So yeah, like today, probably similar to, you know, sharing information, possibly a lot of the uh, GitHub types of, of um, locations that people can go to and kind of ask similar types of questions. I guess there's a lot of social media sites too, just dis discussing it. But um, so one of the things that I wanted to touch upon is the dirty pipe vulnerability because that's something that's been in the news a lot. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that uh, as far as at a high level that people might be interested or need to know about? Dirty Pipe is rather interesting. It, it started out when a, a German who worked for a web, web hosting company called uh, CM4 was getting complaints about bugs in log files. When you run a web server, it's a great idea to look at your log files. And as people were unzipping their log files, some of them would come up with CRC errors, meaning the file was corrupted somehow. He oh. discovered that the file was, the only part of the file was corrupted was actually the checksum at the very end of the file. Oh. But, so he searched through their applications that create, because they have custom a custom web server, they have custom programs for logging, and they couldn't see where that corruption was happening. Then he looked at the, the LZIP library, and they couldn't find it there either. So he, he said, well, maybe it's a kernel bug. And when he looked at the Linux kernel source code, which is you know something you can get from Git, you can look online, he discovered that when a pipe is created, a flag was not being properly set. Now I need to explain that a little bit. So the pipe and dirty pipe. A pipe is a feature of Unix that was, you know, Doug McElroy created the concept of a pipe back in the early 70s. And it's just a way of saying, I'll run this application and I'll take its text output and I'll sit, or any kind of output, but usually text, and I'll pipe it 
to another application. So it's a way of stringing the applications together. And this can be done from the shell, and this can also be done in a program. Well, they were doing this in a program, and it turns out that a bug had been introduced while people were doing something called refactoring the Linux kernel. Refactoring essentially means you go through the code, you clean it up, and you try to make it better. And sometimes when that happens, you lose track of what of something that was important. Like in this case, one line had been deleted. And oh. the line was, yeah, and the line was flags equal zero. Oh no, kind of important. It was. And and since this wasn't said occasionally, very occasionally, you could write to any, I mean, the bug that he was seeing is occasionally he'd get this um, corruption in a file, but he actually wrote a proof of concept that allowed you to, to overwrite any file, even if you didn't have write permission. Oh. Now, you couldn't overwrite the whole file, but you could have write enough of the file that you could log into the computer as the administrator. Oh, wow. So there's a limitation with this. There's actually a couple limitations. Mm -hmm. if, you have an, if you have an older version of Linux, and I just mean, you know, six months older, it won't work because this bug just showed up a few months ago. Mm. Right? You had to have one of the most recent Linux kernels before this shows up. And then, of course, the patches, you know, they just have to recompile the kernel with one more line in it. You know, flags equals zero, and it stops working. Now, the other limitation to this is somebody can't use this to attack you over the network. They have to have already logged into the computer. Now, maybe, uh, go ahead. No, I, I'm just saying, ah, as, as you're telling this, because I hadn't realized that. So that's an, another very important point. Yeah, it is. So now, there are tricks still. But normally, the way this would be used is a local user, is somebody who's actually logged into this particular Linux system, would uh, upload the code, execute the code, and then they could um, elevate their privileges from a normal user to the root user. And the root user is like administrator in Windows. You can do anything, almost anything. Mm -hmm. So that's that's really the dirty pipe in the nutshell. Okay. Well, that's very helpful. I think uh, you explained that in a really good way. And then, you know, talking about how, gosh, just one line. I mean, that change control of of code is so important. Um, and it looks like, you know, just one error. You know, where was the quality assurance to make sure that code was uh, didn't have an error like that? So that, that's a whole other <laughs> topic. But I did want to ask you about with the Unix uh, platform, though, you know, how you got into Unix, you liked it, you, and then you started learning about the security. What, what are the security capabilities in Unix? Maybe that's not found in other operating systems uh, that makes it kind of unique in that, that manner. And, and in, and I know you have many different types of Unix uh, versions out there, but still, is there something that's generally 
available for security in Unix that's not found in others? Well, it, it was more the Unix general philosophy of how things were done. It, it was a different model than you would find in Windows, for example, or um, digital, equi digital equipment, VMS. And so while we were laughing, and by laughing, I mean the Unix people were laughing at Windows NT back in the 90s. Mm. It was because Unix had been around so much longer. And the way it was designed, it came from a different mindset that made it more secure. Now, over time, Windows, Windows we think of what, what Windows NT became Windows over time. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what used to be Windows had no security. Then we had Windows NT. Then we have what was you know, like Windows Server, for example, or Windows 10. They're both based on Windows NT, which is really based on a revised version of digital equipment, VMS. And so there's like two different pathways. But they intersect because in order to sell, Microsoft wanted to sell Windows to U.S. government. And people in the U.S. government were used to Unix and Linux. And Unix and Linux were had an interface called POSIX which is an acronym for the system call interface. And a, um, so that makes Windows and some features of Windows security look a lot like Linux and Unix, but not everything. Um, so what particular thing? One of the things that was really cool in the BSD systems was the, something called the jail. You could run an application in jail and you couldn't see the rest of the file system, like you couldn't see your files or directories. It wasn't allowed to make network connections. So that program was in jail. That concept of jail eventually evolved into what we call containers today. Mm. Okay, and so there were Sun containers, uh, Linux containers, BSD jails, all these things. Um, containers are big news because it allows you to write short, simple programs, and you can run 10,000 of these jails on a single server. So security is very important, but as is also uh, scheduling, not hogging the computer, and so on. Mm -hmm. This feature is now in Windows. But you can see when something is successful in Linux, Microsoft is not going to wait around and and not be able to do the same thing. Now, yeah. one of the things that in is in Linux, but not in other Unixes, is called SE Linux. And that's security enhanced Linux. It came out of the came out of the NSA in around 2000. And not all of the versions of Linux that you see today are using that, but all of them can use it because there are hooks into the operating system. And what that means is that you can have, well, there will be questions later. I can fill this in, like about uh, Android, for example, uses something called SE Android, which is similar to, it's part of SE Linux. And that's not something you'll find in Windows or any other operating system. So it sounds like um, what you described, that, um, 
that that is probably the primary difference between Unix and Linux. That was another question from a, a listener, the primary difference for, in a security perspective between Unix and Linux. So it would be that SE Linux capabilities. Yeah, that's a difficult question because like I'm taking, I mentioned HP Unix, HP UX or HPUX we used to call it. Mm-hmm. They allowed you to run a shell script under what's called set user ID. And that was, that was a terribly dangerous thing to do. So it was a huge weakness in HP's Unix that wasn't found in SunOS's Unix and was definitely wasn't found in Linux. And that was a design decision there. And you couldn't do that in Windows because Windows just didn't support something like that. Mm. So it's, it's not as easy to say, oh, this is better. You know, and the trend has always been, yes, Linux is more secure than Windows, but they're both enormous code bases, tens of millions of lines of software. And mm. just, just like, Flags equals zero. That tiny little change opens up a vulnerability. That can yes. happen to any system. Yes. Well, that that um, brings me to the next question. I think pretty nicely because you were talking too about the the shell scripts and so on. Uh, another listener said or wrote in that I read where hostile online actors exploit Unix shell commands and scripts for execution. Aren't Unix shells the primary command prompt on Linux and Mac OS systems and any others? What can be done to block these types of attacks? Uh, the shell is like command.com or command.cmd.exe on Windows. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's your text, it's your typing interface. And to be honest, it's what I use all the time. You know, I have a, a window, a shell window open. And a shell is just a way that that allows people to use a computer over the network or from a terminal, from a keyboard. And you're, you're not going to get rid of the shell. Mm. To say that the shell is the way most systems are exploited is a misunderstanding, really, because you could... You could say, ah, Windows should not have command.exe because, or, um, oh, I'm forgetting the name of the Windows shell that um, Microsoft put out about seven or eight years ago, which is like a super version of their shell, a super version of command.exe with scripting. Do you want those things there because they're really good for managing your computer? And if you are a, a system or security person, they're going to be using the shell all the time. Mm -hmm. So you don't want to get rid of that. Now, there are some exploits, especially back in the 90s, where what an exploit would do is it would, the attacker would say connect to a service like a mail server. And if the exploit worked, instead of seeing the mail server, they would see a shell and they could type commands to the shell. And one of the commands you could type was FTP, go to the bad, you know, evil.com, upload other exploits, and use that to own the computer. But they don't have to do that. For example, in 
in Windows, there's a system call that says upload this file and execute it. Mm -hmm. And so you don't need a shell. And you could do the same thing about the shell in Unix. So the shell itself is, is not evil. It's not the, you know, it's not a weakness in Unix or Windows. It's simply a tool that's there that sometimes gets used just like you use a screwdriver or a wrench. It's just a tool. And mm -hmm. it's not a weakness in either Unix or, or Linux. Yeah, it's a capability that can sometimes be uh, misused, maybe. Yeah, or, yeah so. it, can be, it can be abused, yes. Yeah. So the next question kind of hits upon, you know, I, I don't know if you were uh, listening to my lead-in, but I was kind of shocked about the number of Unix systems that this one research firm said are still used. I had a reader ask, where are Unix systems still used and in what industries and for what types of computing purposes? Well, I was not at all surprised that 80% of web servers are Unix or Linux systems. I thought it was actually a higher number than that. I ah. think that, yeah, I think that if you, if you discounted a few um, web hosting companies that run Windows, that number would be closer to 95%. Mm. So it's, it's one of the reasons for that is if you want to use Linux and you don't care about support, you, can, you, can, you don't have to have a license for Linux. If you want to run a Windows server, each copy of that Windows server is going to cost you thousands of dollars a year to run. So uh -huh. there is a huge motivation to be not running Windows. That's an excellent point. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a practical point, really. Mm -hmm. the, the other thing, of course, is that for people who like to delve into the details, like the guy who found the, the dirty pipe, Max Kellerin, it's all there. You know, you can go and he went into the source code control system, Git did something called a bisect to dig into it and find the missing flags equals zero. Okay, so that, that's a bit advanced, but you can't do that in Windows because, you know, the source code is copyrighted. It's supposedly a secret, although I've heard it's leaked out a few times, but most people are not going to be looking at it. You don't want to look at it, actually. Now, where, where else is Unix and Linux used? Unix and Linux are used in all of the supercomputers in the world. Now, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe there's some in China or Russia that aren't using specifically Linux or, use, or Unix, mm. but they're probably using some version, something like it, because yeah. it, it works very well. Now, how about your smartphones. Smartphones are either running um, Android, which is actually a version of Linux, or they're running um, iOS, which is based on FreeBSD, which is yet another version of Unix. <laughs> so all roads lead to, to Linux or Unix in some way. Yeah, it does. And then for Internet of Things, Again, you have the licensing issue. 
So yes. are you going to, are you going to put windows inside of your stereo or are you going to put Linux there? If you're going to have a security camera, are you going to pay $100 for a Windows license or are you going to pay nothing and put Linux in there? And of course, see, almost everybody puts Linux in there. Well, and that answers quite nicely the the additional question from my listener about IoT products using Unix or Linux. So it sounds like, yeah, that probably do. I, I do want to hit uh, this next question. I'm going to go on to it because I think a lot of people are, they always want to know about careers, right? Or, or to go into or change to. So how in demand, this is another question from a listener, how in demand are Unix systems administrators, engineers, software developers, and security experts, and how do their salaries compare with those working with other types of systems? Well, the majority of jobs in the computer world these days are going to be on Linux or Windows. And that's one way of looking at it right there. Mm -hmm. uh, Microsoft just said that by 2025, there will be a shortage of 1.3 million security professionals. Just in general or for Unix? Just in general. Okay. Okay. So in, in my experience, in, in most companies do not hire both a Linux and a, or Unix Linux and a Windows security person, depending on the size of the company. Now, if you have a big enough company or a company that puts a lot of resources in security, yeah, they will have Windows and Linux specialists. They'll be separate. But oftentimes, those, you know, that job is going to mean that you need to understand Windows security practices and Linux security practices. And you'll be working with administrators. So when you work at the administrators, you're sort of looking over their shoulder or you say, here is something, here's something that you need to patch today because yes. it's vulnerability level greater than eight and it's, it's a network vulnerability, you've got to do it now. But you'll be doing other things too, like yeah. scanning, your, scanning your network, looking for vulnerabilities, actually understanding how the networking works is important too. So we're almost out of time and I hate to cut you off, but I do want to give you the opportunity, like in about a minute's amount of time, what is the primary takeaway you want to leave with our listeners today about Linux and Unix, if that's, if those are systems that, you know, they wanted to know more about? Unix and Linux are wonderfully open systems. There's loads of books, there's loads of online materials. You can get your questions answered online very easily. Um, it, there, it's really a, a fun place to learn. And, and at the same time, it's not as vast as the Windows world. The Windows world is, is enormous and complex, and some of that has to do with its, its, its history. So um, do you have classes out there that people can go? You have books, right? If people oh, yeah. can. So I'll put you that know. in your uh, bio. So people Oh, no, can... please, <laughs> please don't. Right now, please don't, okay. No, my book is, is very old. I stopped 
teaching classes. I was teaching SD Linux security in 2013. But as I got older, standing and talking all day just became something I was no longer very interested in doing. I have other, you know, by the time you reach my age, hopefully you have done enough things in your life that I could be retired right now. And so I only work when I feel like it. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for coming to be on the show today. I really appreciate it. And I know the listeners learned a lot today. So thank you for being on the show today, Rick. I really appreciate it. Yeah, that hour went really fast. It did. Uh, Today I've been speaking with Unix and Linux trailblazing cybersecurity expert Rick Farrow. Please send feedback about this show. Would you like to hear more about this topic? Just let me know or have another topic. You can reach me using Rebecca Harold at RebeccaHerald.com. If you can't make our scheduled debut show each month, of course, you can listen to all the recordings and you can listen to them on your favorite news app. And you can visit my YouTube channel, The Privacy Professor. We're starting to put some of our shows on there, too. Until our next show, ask those that you do business with and who you work for. Are they doing all that they can to secure the data that you've entrusted to them? Be privacy aware in the month ahead. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in this week. Data security and privacy with the Privacy Professor can be heard live the first Saturday of each month at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until next time, stay safe. Professor is your trusted source for effective information security, privacy and compliance advice, compliance tools, education, consulting, expert witness services, research, report writing, and board positions. Visit us online at privacyguidance.com. Rebecca also provides keynote speeches and her free Privacy Professor monthly tips messages she has published since 2007. Visit privacyguidance.com for help and answers to your questions. The Privacy Security Brainiacs team wants everyone responsible for security, privacy, and compliance to stay up to date with the latest news, risks, and security and privacy practices. Check out their growing library of topics not offered by others. Privacy Security Brainiacs also wants every business to perform automated risk assessments, which are free or value-priced for all types of security and privacy topics. You need to find out more about Privacy Security Brainiacs. Visit privacysecuritybrainiacs.com.